Well, thank you, Simon. Uh, as, we, as we prayed earlier, um, that God would speak to us through his word. And we sang that song about uh, his word being a sword to us. Let's be praying that as we listen to his word now, as we just had it read. I wonder how you feel as you hear the Ten Commandments read like that. Maybe you feel a bit guilty, because like me, you recognize that in heart, in many ways, we break these commandments. Maybe you grieve that our culture, in some ways, is breaking these commandments, uh, ignoring the idea of a day of rest, for instance. Maybe you agree with the late Christopher Hitchens, an atheist, who found the bans on murder and adultery and theft Redundant, He said, no society discovered has failed to protect itself from such self-evident crimes. You know, you, you don't need the Ten Commandments. We all know that we shouldn't murder people. He also found the Tenth Commandment, don't covet your neighbor's house and wife and uh, servants and so on. Uh, ridiculously difficult. He said, one may forcibly be restrained from wicked actions, but to be told not to contemplate them is too much. So are the Ten Commandments ridiculous, or redundant, or righteous? That's really the question this morning. Now, we heard last week that God has brought his people from slavery in Egypt to this mountain in order to enter relationship with them, to call them to be his people. It's called a covenant in the Bible, a relationship between two parties who commit to be faithful, loyal to each other. Closest parallel probably is a marriage. And God has taken his people and said, look, I will be your God. I'll be faithful to you and love you. And he's now asking his people to respond and say, well, we will love you in return and be faithful to you. That's where the Ten Commandments sit. So crucially in the Bible, at the heart of that relationship And this covenant ceremony, it's almost like a marriage ceremony, goes on actually right through to chapter 24. So we'll come back to the idea of a covenant again next week. But I want to ask, as we look at these Ten Commandments, as we call them, three questions about them. Here are the questions. Who does God speak them to? Why does he speak them And then what does he say? So the first two, we'll be a little bit quicker with those. They are introductory questions. Who does he speak them to? Why does he speak them? And then we'll actually look at the ten briefly. What do they say? So if you're with me, let's start with that first question. Who does God speak these to? Have a look at verse 1. God spoke all these words. Notice, by the way, they're called words, not commandments. We'll come back to that later. And if you look at the verses before, from chapter 19, he speaks these words to all the people. He's called Moses to be the mediator, but he's also calling the people to come and listen. And he speaks these, at least, directly to God's people. So it's Israel, originally. But actually, these commandments are universal Commandments. They are for the people of Israel, but they're universal. Uh, why do we say that? Why are they for everyone, not just Israel, for Jewish people? Well, partly because they go back. You can trace many of the commands through the earlier part of the Bible, right back to Adam and Eve. They are for humanity. Don't murder, don't 
steal and so on. They're also quoted by Jesus and the others in the New Testament. So Jesus famously in Matthew 22 quotes the commandments when he's asked which is the greatest and says the greatest is this love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself he's quoting two other verses but many think those are a summary of the ten commandments the first five commandments about loving God the second five about loving our neighbor as ourselves. So Jesus says, they didn't stop with the Old Testament. They're still current. And I've put them on the screen there. In Galatians 5 and James 2, both Paul and James quote the command to love our neighbor and call it the, the royal law, the law to love. So, so I should say Matthew 22, not Matthew 5, 37 to 40, that first reference there. So these are universal. They are for all people from Adam and Eve onwards. They're for Christians, not just for Jewish believers before Christ. Jew or Gentile. They are also not just universal. They are also enduring commands. They're for the people, and they're enduringly for the people. The commands of the Ten Commandments are what is in the area of how we should live, how to live to please God lifestyle, behaviour we call it, what's called moral law, behaviour law. Many of the later commands in Exodus and in other books like Leviticus that follow are instead about how we approach God in worship, ritual, purity, food laws, sacrifice, priests, what's called ceremonial law, fulfilled in Christ, through his sacrifice for us, and therefore not binding on all Christians today. Other New Testament makes it clear that some other law in the Old Testament is what's called civil law. Things like what to do if your neighbour runs over your horse, or crashes their car and dents yours. Civil law. And... Again, as Christians, those are not binding us in the same way because we're not part of the civil law of uh, civil nation of Israel. We come under the civil law of whatever nation we live in as Christians, the UK in our case. So the Ten Commandments are different. They're not ceremonial about rituals. They're not civil about social crimes and so on. They are moral law binding on us all Universal and enduring. Is that clear? Okay, so far? Second question then, and even quicker on this one. Why does God speak them? If they're for everyone and they're lasting, enduring, why does he give them? Why does he speak these commands? Well, it's very common, I think, for us today, whether Christians or not, to think the Ten Commandments are the way to purchase our ticket to heaven. We all know we can't keep all of them all the time. We all break them sometimes. But we think, if I do well enough, if I keep mm, eight of the commandments for 80% of the time, that probably weighs up well enough to earn the love of God, to get to heaven, as we put it. 
But actually, have a look again at verses 1 and 2. See how God introduces himself. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then he gives the commandments. You see the order there. It's really important, this. So crucial. It's not, if you keep these commandments, I will set you free. It's, I've set you free. Now I call you to live my ways. I have redeemed you. Now I call you to be responsible and relate to me. So redemption, we say, comes before relationship. Grace, God's free gift of new life, is the context for law, how we live that life in Christ. So one person said, the the commands are given not as a condition of earning redemption, that's already happened, but to fulfill the mission their identity lays on them, on Israel. And on us. Does that make sense? Redemption before relationship and responsibility and mission. It's rather like, you know, if you were chosen to play for Norwich City next week, how exciting would that be? What a privilege that would be to run out onto that hallowed turf next week. But as you do so, you've got freedom to run wherever you want, to kick the ball however you want to. But you have got some rules, like don't kick other players. Don't handle the ball unless you're the goalie, or it's a throw-in. Don't wear the kit of the opposing team, for goodness sake. You're in yellow and green. That's how the commandments work. We have the privilege of belonging, and now we're called to live within the boundaries that God set. And these commandments are relevant for us as Christians, if we're Christians, in three ways. First, actually, for everyone, whether Christian or not, they're like a mirror. They help me recognize sin in my life. Just when I look in the mirror in the morning, I can see the the smudge of dirt on my face. They point out sin to me. If you look at our end of our reading from verse 18, that's how it sort of works here. When the people saw, verse 18, the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. Because they see the holiness of God and they see that they're not holy. And they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us. God speaking to us is terrifying. Now we'll come back to why Moses says, don't be afraid. But Martin Luther pointed to these verses and challenges. He says, the commandments of God may not induce us to fear, but the God who commands most certainly should. God is holy and pure. And when I see his commands that show me how pure he is, I recognize my sin. They're a mirror for me. They point my sin. They also point to Christ the Savior. Again, we'll come back to that. They're also, secondly, not just a mirror, a bridle. You know, the thing that that you you pull the reins and it keeps the horse on the right path, stops the horse going left or right. And we're talking here about how the commandments 
keep whole communities or societies from degeneration, from falling into moral corruption. We see the word do do not murder. We put it in our law code, maybe, as we have in this country. And it keeps a society from corruption, from becoming completely wicked, which, because of human sinfulness, we would otherwise. So in our country, British law is built largely on the Ten Commandments. The sanctity of human life, for instance, from the Sixth Commandment. And you might say, well, our society is so morally confused and so lost and godless in some ways, that's true, but it will be a great deal more grim were it not for the Ten Commandments. They're a bridle for a community. They're also, thirdly, a guide for Christian believers. If I get the car out tomorrow morning and drive, drive off down the road, how can I know how to be safe on the road or to ride my bike or to cross the road without something like the highway code to guide me? And how can I know how to live to please Christ without the Ten Commands to guide me. And so in verse 20 now, at the end of our reading, Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. That's grace, isn't it? Don't be afraid of God. He will provide a way for you to come to him, though you are not holy. Trust in him. But God has come to test you so that the fear of God may keep you from sinning. As I come to know God through his words, that grows a a godly fear. We call it a, a reverence for him that keeps me from sinning. And the commands are how he speaks in Christ that I learn the character of God and how to live for him. Does that make sense? They're a guide, a godly guide to help me. Now, I know that I break the Ten Commandments many days, most days, in in thought, in word, in deed. But I'm a justified sinner for whom Christ, who lived the perfect life, who kept these commands, for whom he died. And yet, as Christians, we have Christ to help us to live these commands out now. We're not just on our own with this. Far from it. Jeremiah. That verse there, Jeremiah 31, 33. Promised today when God would write his laws in our hearts. So not on stone tablets like the Ten Commandments were, but in our hearts to keep us from sinning. The spirit of Christ in me is going to direct me and guide me as his laws written in my heart. So they are profoundly useful, powerful, as a mirror, as a bridle, and especially for Christians as a guide for our hearts. So if you're with me so far, we've looked at who these are for, why God speaks them. Now, let's get to the nitty-gritty. What does God say in the Ten Commandments. We've only got a short time to uh, ask that question and answer it, but just four general points about the commands first. They are about freedom. 
most of the commandments are phrased, eight of them in fact, you shall not. But actually, they're not about limiting us. They're about freedom. To command me, Richard, do not murder, it doesn't exactly limit my human relationships much, does it? It's not saying don't make friends, don't speak to anyone, don't give gifts, don't forgive someone. I've still got enormous freedom in human relationships. I'm just told not to murder. Any more than the silent swimming pool saying, don't run, don't drink alcohol, limits me from doing the front court or the breaststroke and having a lemonade when i finished. So they don't limit me, they're about freedom, they're about desire. They are challenging me about what I love most. Jesus said this, didn't he? He says it's about loving the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind and strength and it's about loving your neighbour as yourself. What do you truly love? That's what they're all about. It's about desire. They're about me. God speaks to me here. They may be addressed to all Israel but they're actually in the original in the singular, not the plural. You shall not means you Mary, you John, you Richard. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. So every time I hear these words, and the Bible's actually full of these commands when you look for them, every time I hear these words, I can't sort of hide in the congregation or pass them over my head to the row behind me till they go out the back door of church because they don't apply. They are for me. And fourthly, they are principles. They're not specific. Uh, Later in Moses, in Exodus, Moses shares more specific, what's called case law. If someone does this, you should punish them in this way. If someone runs over your dog, you should take theirs instead. Case law. These are not, are they like that? These are simply, you shall not. No specifics, no penalties. One's even got a promise attached. Principles, not laws. Ironic. We call them the Ten Commandments. They're actually principles, guidelines, godly ones, vital ones, strongly worded, but still principles. So, to finish, let's have a flavour now of what the Ten Commandments actually say. If they're for me, if they're principles, if they're about desire, where are they going? Well, let's do them in the two groups of five I mentioned earlier. The five that speak to our relationship to God first of all. At least, generally, the fifth one I know is about parents. You shall have no other gods before me, says the first commandment. So if, you, if you've got the Bible open, still I hope you have, back on uh, page 78, then it's verse 3. No other gods before me. God commands his people not to be in relationship with any other God because he is the only true God. That's the point, isn't it? To this point, Israel have had no interest in other gods. They've been in Egypt. We hear nothing that they worship the gods of Egypt there. And yet he knows that when they get into Canaan, like us today, when they have more comfort 
when they become better off and they're no longer slaves, then other gods suddenly become, ironically, very attractive. This is about exclusive loyalty to him. The second command relates to that. No idols. Don't make for yourself an image in the form of anything in the heavens, on the earth, or in the waters below. Saying that created things cannot reveal what God is like. Nothing you make can really speak to you of what God is like. He reveals himself, doesn't he, in the Bible, by speaking to us. Not by saying, I'm a bit like a camel. Or a bit like a whale. Or a bull. And to collect idols, and the New Testament tells us that idols are not simply statues of animals. They're anything in my heart that comes before God. Anything I think of as a God to me. Collecting idols breaks this command. Like a husband whose wife is unfaithful, God is jealous, rightly jealous, of our loyalty. Thirdly, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Using God's name casually, whether as a swear word or as a guarantee and a broken promise, or by perhaps talking the talk of God but not walking the walk, breaks his commandment. Fourthly, verse 8, the longest commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And then a, a number of things that expand that. The length of the command probably tells us this is a very key commandment. To have a seventh day of rest. Uh, the Israelites have heard this before. They practice this in the desert. But they need reminding. Remember, he says. Rest on the seventh day, we find, is not only good for my health, but actually for my heart. Because as God created in six days and then rested, so we remember God's creative purposes leading to rest whenever we stop to rest. Rest for the whole community, for my servants, for my goats and my sheep. Rest points to the promise of rest in Jesus we find in the New Testament. And it points to the promise of rest in heaven too. The eternal rest to which Christ calls us in faith. And then fifthly, honour your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Again, that's the promise there, isn't it? The one command with a promise. Not a command to worship my parents, to blindly obey them in absolutely everything. If their command is ungodly. But with the promise of lasting life for doing so, I am to give those who gave me life honour in this life. So those are the first five commands, particularly about my relationship with God. Now, what about my neighbor? Command six to ten. You shall not murder. 
most people think that this command not to kill forbids not only deliberate killing, but accidental as well. Jesus, you may know from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 21, takes us deeper and warns us that if I hate someone in my heart or curse them, I am committing spiritual murder. Seventh command is similar. You shall not commit adultery. Any sexual relationship with a married person other than my husband or wife is excluded. Again, Jesus warns us that looking at a woman lustfully is committing spiritual adultery in the heart. Number eight, you shall not steal. This includes kidnapping someone. Slave trading, for instance, but it also includes armed robbery. It also includes more stealthy sins like tax evasion or take advantage of my neighbour at the till in the cafe. You shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. So if you're asked to give a character reference to someone at a tribunal, speak what is true for that person's good. And it's about here as much the character of the testimony, the person, the witness, as about the words I speak. Last tenth. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, and I'll paraphrase here, nor his wife, or his investment portfolio, or his cars, or his television. This is the only command you can break, isn't it, without anyone knowing you've broken it. Because it's in here, it's in the heart, isn't it? It's the heart of the commandments, really, because it is all about the heart. They all flow from this one. And coveting, the word here, it means desiring, and it can be a good thing. You might, uh, churches sometimes say, we covet your prayers on this matter. Or it can be an evil thing, coveting what is not good. So really, this commandment is saying, isn't it, this. Is my desire for my neighbor's good or for my neighbor's goods? That's the Ten Commandments, what they say. We've seen, haven't we, that these are remarkable commandments in their wisdom, in their righteousness, and in their power. They are a mirror pointing to my sin. They're a bridle to preserve a community. And they are a guide for my heart by the power of Christ in me by his spirit. Let's thank him this morning, God, that he spoke these words to us, that he speaks these words to us. And let me finish with these three questions. As we ask what God is saying to us, how is he speaking through them now? Am I convicted by the commands of God that I am a lawbreaker, that I need forgiveness? If you hear God speaking to you today, as the people did then, and you're trembling, it's not wrong to tremble in the presence of God because of our sin. But there is a Savior, there is a Christ, who lived a perfect life, 
and who gave his life for us to bring us into a new covenant of grace, of forgiveness, and of the Spirit. Come to him today. Ask me or James how you can do that. Ask the person next to you, how do I do that? How do I become a Christian? Come to the Discover course that Giles mentioned. Am I listening to God's words? How I need God's law to teach me. How I need to hear this wisdom and soak it into my heart and allow it to transform my life. There's another mountain in the Gospels where Jesus is there with his closest disciples and God in his glory shines through Christ. The transfiguration it's called. And God the Father says, this is my son. And he says, listen to him. Christ speaks today through his words to challenge me to forgive my enemy, to be pure in my thoughts, not to be greedy, to be honest in my speech, to center my heart on God, to keep his Sabbath holy. Am I listening? As I listen on Sunday, in my small group, my one-to-one as I read the Bible each day. Lastly, am I longing? Am I pleading for God's help to live this out? How great these commands are, but how beyond me if I rely on my own strength? And how wonderful that my hope rests not on whether I can keep these commands every day, but on Christ in me by his spirit, writing his law there and transforming my heart day by day. Christ kept this law, I cannot. But Christ in me, I can begin to. So, may I plead for the Spirit to fill me, for his law to be written in my heart by faith, for love for God to be my greatest desire, and love for my neighbour my second. And then you and I, you see, will be led, won't we, to, to love God to discard the idols that tempt us, to take his name as holy, to make his Sabbath holy, to honour those who gave me life, to desire, instead of the lives of others, the marriage partners, the property, the reputation of others, to desire the good of others and the glory of God. Wonderful commands. Let's pray now. I'm going to pray a very short, simple prayer. Finishing where we've just finished. Asking for God's help and spirit. And then Margaret's going to continue in a moment of prayer. A good prayer for us to pray over these commands every day would be something like this. Lord, by your spirit in me, teach me to covet not the goods of others, but to covet your glory and their good. Amen.